0: Good morning. Can we give Andrew a round, real fast? First and foremost, thank you for the gospel makes this job a little bit easier when someone already tees it up with the gospel message. But also, thank you for uh, teeing up uh, in Christ alone. That that song has special meaning to Chris and I. It, um, we we engaged in our first act as a couple. We took communion together as we listened to that song. As that song was played over us, so a special song to me. And I thank you for doing it such a good service. But uh, as Daniel said, I'm Nick Crawford, community groups pastor here at Findering Church. We're still in James asking the question about choices. What do you do when you don't have a clue? Today we're talking about conflict. A lot of it going on lately. Conflict. Some of us like it. Even pursue it. It charges you up. It gives you energy. Some of us even manufacture conflict to print newspapers. Others of us hate it. We hate it so much we avoid it at all costs, often sweeping it under the rug. But even those of us who hate conflict know that conflict is inevitable. Sooner or later you're gonna have to step on that rug and all the dust is gonna come flying out. And the unfortunate truth about conflict is that it often emerges from within the family Sadly, the people we love the most are often the people we hurt the most. So what do we do when conflict emerges from within the family, our church? We'll answer that question in James 4, verses 1 to 10 today. We can put that up. You guys can turn there. If there's a black Bible in front of you, it's on page 1012, continuing to 1013. Here's some background for it. Recall who James is and who he writes to. James is the half-brother of Jesus He had a front row seat to Jesus' life and ministry. And like so many people who spend a lot of time with Jesus, James was heavily influenced by Christ. Look who he wrote to, to Christians, and look how he references them as a family. Twenty times within the ESV, James references them with a familial phrase, calling them brothers or sisters. Twenty times, that's a lot, considering there are only 108 verses in James and only five chapters In the letter, James has a heavy burden for the Christian community because of his heavy influence by Christ. You see, Jesus left us and he returned to the Father. He did so to send his spirit to empower the church, a community, for his mission, to bring God's family back to the Father. Church, the community is what proves the gospel to be true. When when believers gather, the gospel is always at stake, and that's why James writes with such urgency. He's all business, bombarding us with 59 commands in the 108 verses. He sends an onslaught of imperative verbs more so than any other work of the New Testament. He's all business because he's got the Christian community and the gospel in mind. James ramps up up his intensity even more as we come to chapter 4 because all that friendly familial talk that characterized earlier in the letter, it's absent in this passage. It's absent. You see, poorly handled conflict is damaging to the the gospel. But properly handled conflict moves us to deeper relationships. You see, when we remove the obstacle to our unity, we grow deeper together. James gives us clear instructions for how this happens. Let's read. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts and minds today. Let us see you who for you are and for what you have done. You alone have the power to transform our desires to your desires. You alone have the power to cure all our conflict. May this message simply reflect the grace that you have poured out to all in Jesus. Amen. God's Word is living and active, and it speaks directly to the bad news that is currently rolling on our TV. James does so with truly good news. Church conflict exists. We can't avoid it pretending that it doesn't. Bad stuff is going on. What happened in Dallas is awful. And the fallout produces factions. If we're ever going to grow together, we're going to have to confront the conflict that divides us. You see, conflict is a disease that plagues the health of every community. Handled poorly, it slithers its way into the marrows, destroying relationships and dividing God's family. Handled properly, conflict deepens relationships and builds up the body as it unifies the family with the grace of the gospel. But we fail at this. In fact, words like fights, quarrels, passions, war, and pride stain this letter like ink blots on the page because they stand in stark contrast to how James ends chapter 3 with a picture of peace. Why does conflict exist? Why are there so many upset families? Why are there so many feuds among Christians? James gives us the answer. He says it's our passions at war in us. We must keep ourselves unstained from the world but all of our fighting and quarreling prove just how worldly we really are. James tells us we need the gospel much more than we think and we need to apply it in community. Recall the truth that he laid down in chapter 2 verse 13 that mercy triumphs over judgment and it's community that proves that gospel truth true. Jesus himself said in John 13, 34 to 35, he said, Love one another as I have commanded you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The Christian community proves the gospel to be true, but how can we prove the gospel true when so much conflict is among us? James tells us what to do when conflict arises from within the body. He teaches us to identify the cause of the conflict to focus on the cure of the conflict, and to apply the cure. Verses 1 to 4, we've got to focus, we've got to start by identifying the cause of conflict. He teaches, teaches us that selfish pursuit is the cause of conflict. Adultery is the consequence. James teaches that we lust after our desires, and this causes conflict within the family, so we need to pray to align our desires with God's desires James leads with quarrels and fights. The family, the church, is literally in a state of war. He has in mind here, again, quarrels between Christians, not wars between nations. He points the finger right at his audience, asking, what causes quarrels and fights among you? He gives us the answer. It's your passions are at war within you. The word for passion means lust. And desire. Our desires wage war in our hearts. When we pursue the world, we're never satisfied, so we're constantly frustrated for our desire for more. This desire is so strong that it changes how we see our family. You see, it's in our quest for more that people stand in our way, they become obstacles. We see them as obstacles and we step over those obstacles. James gives us two reasons while we don't realize our desires. Number one, we don't ask God. And number two, when we do ask Him, our motives are wrong. You see, the proper motive for any prayer is found in 1 John 5, 14. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. But our motives are selfish. We tend to be individualistic, consumeristic, and materialistic. We want more to spend it on us. But God's motives are always for His glory, and for the good of his church. Our passions are misplaced when they're found in pleasure in anything other than God. That's idolatry, and idolatry has a consequence. Verse 4, Adulterous people, an indicting reference to the Old Testament prophets who referred to God's people as God's bride. When we selfishly pursue the things of the world, we cheat on the God who created us. We must choose between a desire for the world and a desire for God. Last month, Kristen and I took our son, Coy, down to the beach. We went to Biloxi. Now, I'm from the Delta, so I think of the coast as trash, right? Some of you are offended. I'm sorry, but not really. Now, I didn't know there was so much family fun down in Biloxi. It's really someplace you ought to check out. It's got a great ballpark. Even if you don't like baseball, you'll enjoy yourself at that double-A ballpark down there. We even could support one of our Fondren neighbors. Sal has got a good spot right there on the beach. We ate some ice cream there. And it's got some decent beaches. We went and, and took advantage of the beach every day. Every morning we'd pack a lunch, pack our stuff, head on down to the beach and set up shop. One morning we gave Koi his little sandwich, I think it was bologna, and that dude went to town. He gobbled the whole thing up all the way down to the last bite, which he dropped into the sand. What do you think he did at that point? He did whatever every two-year-old's going to do. He went for it. So Kristen and I lunged. We intercepted the sandy bite, and we slapped it to back, back down into the sand. That's where it fell. We explained to him that the sandy bite, if he ate it, would make him sick. It wasn't good for him, but he didn't care. He just looked up at me with a blank stare of a two-year-old, and he kept squatting down, inching closer and closer to that bite. He wanted that bite badly. We yelled at him. We reasoned with him. Anybody else have success reasoning with a two-year-old? If I see a hand up, I'm calling you a liar. It doesn't work. (laughs) We disciplined him, too, but none of it worked. Nothing that we did could prevent him from going after the bite, the only thing that we did do to prevent him from going after it was to replace it with something better. We offered him something sweet and when he took the little sweet chocolate or something that we gave him, we took that opportunity to get the bad bite and throw it out of our family circle. That's how it is with temptation and sin in the family. You gotta get it out. Our selfish desires cause conflict. We got to replace them. We got to replace them with something greater. Jesus is always better. Our selfish desires cause conflict. We want more stuff, more money, more status, more credit, more, more, more. But we got to replace those desires with Jesus. Jesus is always better. Fact is, though, there is conflict among Christians, and if it's handled poorly, it can divide the church. But instead of taking our desires to the Lord, we fight each other to get what we want. James says, don't fight, don't argue, pray. Prayerlessness results in a failure to receive the blessings that God wants to give. You see, when we pray, we acknowledge God as greater. We come underneath our Father who art in heaven. He becomes better, He becomes greater, and He purifies our desires the more we pray. The more we pray, Our desires become his desires. Church, if you want something, go ask God for it. If he doesn't answer the prayer, it simply means that your motives were not pure. You didn't want them for his glory or for the good of his family, you wanted them for your own selfish enjoyment. So let me ask you do you talk to God? When you do, what do you talk about? Do you find yourself talking about yourself a lot? Seeking permission for plans that you've already made. Rather than starting with yourself and ending with God, God, I need this, this, and this, and thank you for Jesus, flip the order. Start with God, then confess your sins, thank Him for what He's done, and then ask Him for whatever it is that you want. That's a simple prayer model. That's a healthy prayer model. It goes by the acronym of ACTS. A, adoration. Adore God for who he is. C, confession. Confess your sins and get them out of the family. T, thanksgiving. Thank him for what he's done. And S, supplication, simply means request. Lastly, after you've acknowledged who God is and what he's done and gotten your sin out of the midst, ask him for whatever your heart desires. Ask God to get rid of your selfish desires and align your heart with his heart. We need to identify our selfish pursuits as the cause of conflict among us. That way, we can focus on the cure to conflict. In verses 5 and 6, James teaches us that selfless pursuit, grace, is the cure to conflict. Our human nature draws us to the world. We need God. We're sick. James announces the cure to conflict by announcing who God is. He calls attention to an element of God's character. He's jealous. And remember, James is talking to Christians. Despite all the diversity within God's family, the one thing we all have in common is the gospel. The gospel is what unifies us all. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in the heart of a believer, joining us to the Father in a deep and intimate relationship. That's why God will not tolerate divided allegiance. His holy and jealous character will not allow it. God, the Father, is jealous for His Spirit. Verse 5. Focus in on who's in pursuit. God is the subject of the action. Okay? God is the great pursuer. He yearns jealously for our entire devotion to Christ. But none of us can offer pure and undevoted devotion to Christ by remaining unstained from the world. So, Recall chapter 2, verse 13 again. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James tells us how that happens in verse 6. God gives more grace. God gives more grace. God gives us the very help that we desperately need to stop pursuing that which divides and to start pursuing that which unifies, Him. God's selfless pursuit is the cure to conflict. Even though our human nature moves us to pursue the world, God still pursues us. He doesn't leave us alone to deal with conflict in the body, in the power of our own hands. God gives us a weapon for our warfare. He gives us grace. Grace. That word signifies kindness, generosity, kindness, and compassion to those in need. And this term finds its fullness in God's work at the cross. Every ounce of God's saving purpose was expressed by his effort at the cross. So there's no room for our effort. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Look who he gives it to. It's not the proud. It's not the self-reliant. God opposes the self-made man. God, the Father, the giver of every good and perfect gift, gives to the humble, his dependent children. God pursues the God-made man. He gives grace. God, the Father, never gives up on his family. Church, grace is a fundamental word about God. Grace is what God does. And it's this experience of the Father's grace that transforms how we see others they become brothers and sisters, a family unified by the grace that only he can give. I was at a conference earlier this year, one I'd been looking forward to. Uh, one of these sessions, we had a breakout session, it was a Q&A session. Really was looking forward to this one because it was chock full of pastors from around the country who, were, who do what I do. And this one pastor, I think from the Midwest, I'm not sure, he made a bold claim for that room. He gets up and he says, there are two types of people in the world. There are life givers and there are life suckers. And he lamented the fact that the group that he leads is full of life suckers. And then he said, I group with people that I could never be friends with. I'm like, wow. The pastor said that. Pastor. I assume this guy wanted what's best for his people, but I can tell you this. He did not know how to give it to them. This guy, he was was tired. He was tired with a bunch of people who did not look like how he wanted them to look. He didn't pursue authentic relationships, so he didn't receive the grace that God wanted to give him through them. And he was left with frustratingly shallow relationships. We need to rethink how we view our friends. Jesus called us his friends, and I'm pretty sure we are not the kind of people that he would naturally be friends with. We're sinners, and he hates, so, he hates sin so much that he died to kill it forever. In August and September, we're going to ask you guys to get into a group if you're not already, in, not already in one. We want you to experience the gifts of grace that God disperses amongst a family of believers. We're all individually incomplete, but a body functioning together moves us towards completion we want you to help contribute to the body here to build it up by sharing what god is doing in your life with some others now i know you want the perfect group we all want the perfect group i do we all want our group to be either comprised of bulldogs or rebels not a mixture of both right but let me tell you something we God did not create anybody who looks just like you. He did not create anybody in the world who looks like you would have them look. He gave us brothers and sisters who look different from us so that we could see the creator above them. God creates every man and woman in the image of his son, and that's an image that once looked pretty different and strange to us before we grasped it. You see, the Christian community is a family and conflict exists in the family. If you're in a group currently without conflict, it's either a brand new group or you're not pursuing authentic relationships. Conflict is inevitable, but rather than avoid it or try to dominate it, embrace it because properly handled community moves us deeper together. It builds deeper relationships because it reveals the grace that only God can give. So rather then look for our spiritual twin in another. Look for God's image in another. It's in God's image that you will see his grace. We cannot lose sight of the gospel. We must always focus on the cure to conflict. And we got to apply the cure. We apply the cure by responding in faith and, resp- and repentance. But if you don't know grace, you can't apply the cure. The cure was never meant to stay in the bottle. It wasn't. You see, a remedy that's still in the bottle is just a salve. But the salve becomes salvation when we apply it. James tells us how in verse 7 through 10. He hits us with an array of imperative verbs. He does so to teach us how to apply the gospel to our lives. He says, submit to God. Submission is a military term. It means to be subordinated to. It's more than mere obedience because it involves humility in fact, the gospel always produces a spirit of humility because the gospel says you have everything, yet you deserved nothing. He says resist the devil. That means take a stand. Recall how Jesus resisted the devil in the wilderness. He didn't avoid him. Jesus did not resist the devil by avoiding him. He denied his advantages, advances by taking a stand in the truth of God. And Jesus beat Satan. Satan tempted him appealing to his flesh by offering him power, pleasure, and providence. But Jesus didn't take the bait, even though Satan took him to the pinnacle of the world and says, everything you see is yours, just take it. Jesus took a stand, and from the pinnacle he exalted God. So God delivered on his promise and exalted the humble. Verse 8, James says, draw near to God. It's a close friendship with God that pulls us away from the world and pushes us to the God who promises to draw near to us. Cleanse and purify. These are imperatives. They recall the ritual practice of the Old Testament priests who constantly had to clean and purify themselves so they can handle God's property and enter his presence. It says cleanse your hands. That speaks to your actions. Purify your heart. It speaks to your motives and your desires. James is calling us deeper into the gospel waters right here. You see, Christ's sacrifice is what makes us clean and pure. James calls us to reflect on Jesus' work at the cross with those two imperatives. Thinking on on Jesus' sacrifice promotes faith and repentance. Living by grace under the influence of the Spirit changes us in thought and in action. This is what enables us to access the throne of grace in the first place. He says, Be wretched, mourn, and weep. There's the call to repentance. Sin is not a laughing matter. Genesis 6-6 reminds us that it's our sin that grieves the very heart of God. So if our hearts are aligned with God's heart, it'll grieve us too. Humble yourself before God. The way up is always down. Jesus emptied himself, humiliating himself by death on a cross as an exalting pathway to the Father. James says we go low to be lifted. The way to resolve conflict within the family is with a spirit of humility. Humility is how we grow up into holiness. And as we individually grow in holiness, the family thrives in gospel-centered harmony. As you know, I've just done it. I like telling stories about my son. A father delights in his child. One of these days, the little boy is going to grow up and he's going to get proud, and these stories are going to embarrass him. But while he's still so young, I'm going to take advantage because that two-year-old teaches me so much. Last Wednesday was a bad morning for me, very bad morning for me. You would never have known it, though, if you'd have been up at 530 with me. There I was peaceful and I was calm. I was drawing near to the Father as I was praying and reading my Bible. Fast forward two hours later, I was a mess. As I went out into the world, I was a mess. You see, as I walked to the truck, my son wanted to play. I couldn't. He cried, stress mounted. I became overwhelmed by the pressures of what I had to do. I had stuff to do and little time to get it done with. You see, the shortened week put pressure on me. I tried to get done a week's worth of work in about two two days. Some of you know this. Fourth of July was a Monday holiday. The week was short. Some of you might be feeling the same stress that I felt this week. And as I walked in my truck, my bag fell off my shoulder and with it everything else. And I reacted in anger as if it was the bag's fault. But I knew I could not send my little boy off to school with that as his last memory for the day. So when we got to school, I crawled out of my driver's seat and into his car seat. I bowed my head in his lap and I prayed to God. I asked him for forgiveness. I asked him to forgive me for disrupting my son's image of the Father. And with my head bowed, I felt a little hand come underneath my chin and lift up. And then the two year old touched me here and met my eyes with his eyes and he started rubbing my cheeks all around as if to say it was okay that everything was now okay without a word god the father told me that i was in the right place below him and as a result he lifted me above my sin and the pressures of my circumstances so what makes you mad now not all anger is bad there is social injustice that we do need to exhibit righteous anger towards But I'm talking about anger in a destructive way. Think about the last time you got mad in a destructive way. I bet it was an external factor. You see, anger is a response. Anger is a secondary response to an event that puts pressure on our hearts. So we react to the external pressure by looking externally, blaming whoever or whatever is closest, in my case, the backpack. We need to look internally at the deeper issue. Why do I need their respect if I have God's respect already? Why am I making myself out to be God by dominating them with my agenda? Do I really think that my work is so important that I'm the only one who can do it? When conflict comes, we must go low. It's funny because it's there that we find ourselves at our best, because it's there that God found us. Church, we're never closest to failure than than during our greatest success. Atop the mountain, we stand teetering on the edge of its apex. On one hand, we see providence, how God lifted us to the top of the mountain. So our pinnacle becomes the platform where we exalt the Father. On the other hand is pride and destruction. Satan loves to entice us. By, thinking, by making us think that it's all ours, that it was all doing. Without any need for help, we have no room for God. So the p- pinnacle there becomes our throne from which we look down on everyone else. Pride fools us to believe that we deserve more. This is the fallacy of the self-made man. Pride wrecks our individual growth and it hijacks the unity of the family. And here's how. Pride makes us hide rather than live in the freedom of the gospel pride makes us avoid exposure and conflict so we deal with it on our own proverbs 28:13 whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy do you have a trusted brother or sister that you can confess your sins to and go to for the necessary accountability to stop making the same mistakes over and over and over again We need to practice healthy conflict resolution by practicing healthy sin confrontation in community. This brings sin into the light. Pride hides our sin, and that cuts us off from the help help of the family. This is why repentance hinges on humility. To humble ourselves before God is to repent of our God complex. This is why God requires that we walk humbly with Him in Micah 6.8. Humility is the key to receiving and applying God's grace. We grow up into Christ by going down into lowliness. If you really want God's grace to be sufficient for you, humble yourself and leave a lifting to God. To handle conflict we must focus on the gospel which drives us lower and lower. And from a spirit of humility we address conflict by applying the gospel to deeper and more meaningful community. Practical as James is, he never lets us lose sight of the gospel. He writes with urgency, pushing us deeper and deeper into the waters of grace. And the gospel reads like a story. God created us all in his image, men, women, white, black, Asian. He made us all to be with him forever in perfect peace. We pursued the world, though, and our relationship with the Father was fractured, no longer characterized by peace, but conflict, conflict and war. But while we pursued the world, God still pursued us. God the Father does not quit on his family. He sent his son to die for the conflict that we call so that our relationship with the Father could be restored to perfect peace once again. And that is not the end of the story, church. That's not the end of the story. The story does have an end, and it doesn't end here. What happened in Dallas and what's going on in Cambodia right now is not the end of the story. God is still chasing down his children. The story ends with a new heaven and with a new earth where sin, death, race, and every form of injustice are gone forever. The conflict that defines us now will be swallowed up in victory. We as Christians have supreme hope of a new heaven and a new future, and Jesus is the center of all of this. While we wait on Jesus, we're invited to bring healing now. We're inviting to show people and to tell people that God's fa- family will finally be restored. Every nation, tribe, language, and tongue will worship together in peace as a perfect family. When we apply the gospel to our lives, our affections are transformed to what we, from what we want to what God wants so we can respond in joy to his effort at the cross by drawing near to the very source of all unity. We need to get good at going low and let God do the lifting. Let's pray.